Hebrews chapter six this morning. Um, Hebrews six. We are we're finishing six today. We will. Um, we're kind of so in the flow of Hebrews. The author really doesn't want to write chapter six. He wants to write chapter seven. But he has to get chapter 6 first in order to get to 7. If you'll remember, uh, back in 5, he he's introduces this idea of Jesus being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The problem is they're not ready for that message yet. And so he has to, because they're dull of hearing and, and there's a real danger that, that the work that God has started in them will fall flat because they apostatize or fall away. He, he's, he's worried that, that they won't make it through. And so he encourages them. He says, you have to keep growing. This faith that I've seen in you is real. Keep it growing. Don't Give up on it. Don't become dull to the gospel, but let it keep changing you and move from what you start with and build upon it to get to the greater things that God has for you. He, he says to them, basically, uh, um, uh, grow up. In nice terms, of course, but grow up. You need to keep growing. Having given them the warning and having encouraged them to grow, he is now going to move the conversation back to where he wants to get, and he'll get in chapter 7. But first, he's got to make that turn back toward it, and that's what the end of chapter 6 does. So now we've kind of got our bearings, where we are in the argument. Let's read Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. Stand with us as we read Hebrews six thirteen through 20. This is God's word. You let it, it will change your life. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Pray with me. Father, I pray that our hope would be an anchor for our souls. Strengthen us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Boy, there's a, there's a, there's a, I'm struck even now by the nature of the hope that he's talking about. You see, the author of Hebrews wants them and us to have a firm basis of our hope. Look, look at verse 19 again. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the eternal place, inner place, excuse me, behind the curtain. 
I'm convinced this morning that Jesus is minimized in many people's hearts because they don't have this kind of a hope. They have a hope that's wishy-washy. They have a hope that crosses your fingers and hopes it turns out all right. They have a hope like what we often have when someone is feeling sick and we say, oh, I hope you feel better. There's no, it, it, it's little more than a wish or a dream. Jesus is minimized when we have that kind of a hope. If we want to exalt our Jesus, we have to have a much more firm hope. A much stronger hope. Uh, a hope that is not wishy-washy. That is not tossed to and fro by the waves that beset us in this Christian life. If we want to exalt our Christ, we need a strong hope. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews wants his readers to have. That's exactly what God wants us to have as well. See, when we have that kind of hope, our hope brings us ultimate security. That's the kind of hope that will maximize our Christ. So what does it look like? What's, what, what is it that makes this hope so lasting, so strong? Well, there's a couple of words that, that I realize that the author uh, paints, a couple of things that he says about this anchor. First, he tells us that our hope is valid. We don't hear the word valid very often. When we hear it, usually it's invalid, right? That you try to swipe your debit card and it might say an invalid transaction. I have a, a, a flexible spending account for health expenses. We have through, through my wife's work, that's one of the benefits she has. We can spend money, we can put money aside that's untaxed and then spend it on health care. But you have to spend it on health costs. You can't spend it on, uh, you can't spend it on a spa treatment and say, this is for my mental health. It doesn't work that way. You have to spend it at a doctor's office or at a dentist or buying medicine, things like that. If I try to use that card, for something that's not health-related, that's not coded as health-related, the card will say that it's an invalid transaction. You're not allowed to do that. You can only use that for certain types of things. Our hope, if it's going to be a good hope, if it's going to be the kind of hope that exalts Christ, it must be a valid hope. Not just allowed or permitted like the debit card, that I was talking about. No, it has to be, it has to be something that holds up to scrutiny. It can't be, it can't be something that can be explained away or that's a fairy tale. It has to hold up. Another way to say it is it must be firmly established. In fact, the word that this author right, uses in uh, verse 19 is steadfast. When the storms of life are beating against our boat, we need an anchor that is steadfast. An anchor that will not be moved. We need a hope that stays firm. It can't be debated or questioned because it's, because it's true. And we know it's true. It's not a hope against all odds. It's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is certain. I'm staking my life and my eternity on this because I know it's true. That kind of hope 
exalts Christ. And by the way, let me go back to this point for just a second. How do we, how do we, what, how do we know that this hope is valid? One of the ways we know this hope is valid is because others had the same kind of hope and saw their hope realized. Take Abraham. This author points us to Abraham and he says, Abraham's patience gives us a model that allows us to see that this kind of hope is warranted, that it's valid, that it's not something that, 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 that you can maybe hopefully knock on wood might work out. We know it's going to work out because God's proven himself faithful. So let's look now at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 and 15, and let's consider the story of Abraham. When God made a promise to Abraham, it says, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. We'll talk about that in just a second, but keep going. Saying, I will bless you and multiply you. Do you remember when God said that? He said that in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham is, uh, uh, he, he hears God's voice and God says, sacrifice your son Isaac. Now, now think about what Abraham has gone through. He was a hundred years old when Isaac was born. God had promised to Abraham years earlier, 30, 40 years, we don't know exactly how many. We know it was a long time ago. And I don't know if you've tried to have a kid at 100, but that's not an easy feat. <laughs> Y'all are like, I've never been 100, I don't know. Imagine, imagine having a kid now at your age. Yeah. Okay, you got me here? Now, now, add as many decades as you need to to get to 100. I won't fill in that blank for you. Yeah. This isn't exactly um, possible, except with God, all things are possible, right? He says, I will bless you and I will multiply you. Why? Because, because Abraham actually follows through with God's command. Isaac is probably a young teenager at this point. And God says, sacrifice him. And, and Abraham takes him up. He takes him up the mountain. He puts him on the altar, ready to slay his son. In fact, I think he gets to the point where he can't turn back. The decision's already made. And but for God's intervention, he would have killed Isaac. But God intervened. And then you know what God says? He says, surely I will bless you and multiply you. But he says something else before that. I didn't put it in the PowerPoint. But I think it's worth reading. Genesis chapter 22. I'm turning. You can turn if you'd like. Genesis 22. And it's in verse six, uh, 16, I think. Let me make sure. Yeah. So verse 15. I'll go ahead and pick up in verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, Abraham got the promise of God. What's he going to do now? Verse 15, wait patiently. What else can you do when God promises something and it hadn't come yet? 
I mean, there's an aspect where we work, right? Where we do, where we follow God's will. We are obedient to him. But you can't make it happen. All you can do is wait for God to make it happen. It's that kind of hope that magnifies Jesus Christ. That willingness to wait patiently and obediently. Abraham tried to take matters in his own hands, by the way, and he failed miserably. He learned the hard way, but he learned. When he waited patiently, God fulfilled his promise. And so the hope that Abraham puts in God is justified, it's valid, because God is God and he does what he says he's going to do. And now Abraham didn't see the fullness of the promise. He got the son Isaac, but he didn't see multitudes of descendants. Abraham died before the Israelites became a multitude. Abraham died before the descendants couldn't be counted like the stars in the sky, like the sea, uh, the sand on the seashore. He never saw that part of the promise, but he saw enough of the promise to know the rest was coming. He was able to put faith in God because he tried and failed the other way, doing it himself but also because God was showing himself trustworthy the whole time. Remember, this is the same guy that God said, leave where you are and go to a place I show you. And Abraham got up and left. I think finishing what his father started, by the way, because his father had already started the journey. I think Abraham finished it. We can discover this same truth when we put our hope in Christ. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the same God that fulfills the promise to Abraham is the same God that will fulfill his promises to you and me. He doesn't require us to make it happen. He doesn't require us to be smart enough or good-looking enough to have enough accolades and awards. He doesn't require us to sweat enough, put enough uh, elbow grease into it. He doesn't require us to prove our faith by putting great sums of money into the offering plate. Now, it's good, it's good to do these things. It's good to work for God. It's good to give. It's good to, to, to be good-looking and smart. Those are all good things. I wouldn't know much about that. But thank you, brother. Barnabas over here. Uh, he calls us to trust him. And when we trust him, waiting patiently and obediently, we have a hope that's not invalid, but valid. And we lift high our Jesus with a valid hope. There's another characteristic of this hope that he wants us to see. He wants us to also see that our hope is solid. Not only is it valid, not only do we have a good reason to have the hope, but it is solid, guaranteed by God's promises. Verse 19, it's this word sure. We have this as a sure anchor. Uh, if you've ever, ever seen an anchor... They're not light. Some of them, for very, very small boats, can be as little as a couple of pounds. Malcolm, you were in the Navy. Was the battleship anchor a couple of pounds? <laughs> Just a little bit more, right? We went to the battleship park uh, a couple of years ago, and the kids all got on an anchor, and we took a picture of them. And, man, they were jumping all over it, and it wasn't budging. That thing's heavy. Some boats have anchors that are 60,000 pounds. One boat, 
The anchor's so big. I couldn't find the size of the anchor. It, it, this is a boat, by the way, that um, it's, a ca- it's a cargo ship that can hold like 900 large containers. You know those containers on the back of 18-wheelers? And picture about 900 of those stacked up on one of these ships, okay? That's how big this ship is. It said that it was, the, the anchor was so heavy that the links of the chain to hold the anchor, not only the, not the anchor, the link, every link weighed 500 pounds. That's a big anchor. Well, it's a big ship. It needs a big anchor. You can't have a hollow anchor. If you have a hollow anchor, it ain't no good. You need something heavy, something solid, something full of weight so it'll hold that ship in place. If you're going sailing, you need a solid anchor. On this sea of life, we need a solid anchor, don't we? Now, Christ is the solid rock. The anchor that fastens us to him is a steadfast and sure hope. We not only need a hope that's logical, valid, we need a hope that is full, a hope that doesn't waver, a hope that isn't hollow. And the iron that makes up this anchor, it's the very promises of God. Look in 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves. That's why when you go into a courtroom, you have to put your hand on a Bible Raise your other hand and say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God? Right? Notice you don't put it on your heart. You don't swear by yourself. You don't put it on the bench that the judge is sitting at and swear by the judge or by the authority of the court. Notice you don't put it on the chair. You don't put it on anything else. You put it on the word of God because God is greater God is the ultimate authority. And so when we put our hand on a Bible to swear that we are telling the truth, we are invoking God's punishment if we lie. Some people need to learn that lesson, by the way. We swear by something greater than us. And and when we make these things, we give this oath. It's a way of confirming what we are saying or what we are promising is true. We will do it. In our day, we signed contracts. In their day, they gave verbal oaths because everybody around would hold them accountable to doing what they said they would do. You make an oath, you're going to do it. Otherwise, you've got a bunch of witnesses that are going to hold you to it. But what do you do when you're God? You can't swear by anything greater. You're the greatest. God wants us to trust his promises. And it should be enough for him to just say, I promise. That should be enough, right? We should have enough faith that all God has to say is, I'm going to do this, and we know it's sure. And many of us, maybe maybe you've come to that place in life where you trust God enough that when God says it, that settles it, you don't need, you believe it simply because he said it. If you're in that place, great. That's where we all need to be. But there's a lot of folks that don't know they can trust God like that yet. They need some help. They need some assurance. And so what does God do? He confirms it with an oath. He he wants to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise 
He does it for our benefit. He stoops to our level and says, well, you need an oath. I'll make you this oath. How great is it that God is willing to step down to us to meet us where we are? I think that's pretty special. He doesn't have to, you know. But to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. Not only is God unchangeable, his purposes are unchangeable. So to show it, he guaranteed it with an oath. Do you hear how solid this sounds? This isn't wishy-washy. This isn't, this isn't God doing what we do and where we, we, we make a promise, but then we don't really follow through because things come up that we can't control. Or we make a promise and um, we don't really intend to keep it. We're just trying to get them off our back. Or even worse, we're actually trying to deceive. God doesn't do that. He makes the promise. He confirms it with an oath so that it's solid. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Do you hear? Do you hear the iron of this anchor? You ain't moving this thing. You ain't going to break it. You ain't going to move it. Neither is anything else. It's solid. We who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. This is not a weak hope. It is a solid hope. And it's the promises of God that make it so. We already know he's trustworthy. You can look back at Abraham. You can look back at hundreds of folks. Go, if you need extra encouragement, just skip ahead to chapter 11 and read story after story after story of people who put their trust in God and how he did not let them down. They're all right there. We have a hope that's valid and a hope that's solid. Psalm 110. This is an important verse for the next chapter especially. But, but let's introduce it here. The Lord has sworn, catch this, and will not change his mind. Do you see it? It's solid. Genesis twenty two sixteen. We read it just a minute ago. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. This is my set purpose. Nothing's going to change it. God's not wishy-washy. If we're going to have the kind of hope that exalts Jesus Christ, we cannot be wishy-washy either. We cannot be too tossed to and fro by the waves upon the sea. We need a solid anchor bounding us to the rock of ages. We need a hope in God's promises knowing, knowing, not just thinking, not just believing, but knowing they are sure because we know the God who made them And he's not a man that he should lie. God makes promises and he always makes good on those promises. Our anchor will hold when we have that kind of hope. And Jesus is glorified because look at that boat on top of those waves. Oh, it's getting beat up. It's getting thrown around, but it's staying firm, not drifting away from Christ because the anchor is solid. One more characteristic of this hope. It's valid, modeled by Abraham's patience. It's solid, guaranteed by God's promises. Third, 
It's holy. Sanctified by Christ's atonement. We don't just need a good anchor. We need the right anchor. You have that two-pound anchor on a battleship, it ain't going to make any difference. It's a solid anchor. But it's not the right anchor for the job, is it? No, we need the right anchor. We need an anchor that is holy. Not just, not just a good anchor, but holy. That's... We've dealt with the first half of verse 19. Let's consider where he goes beyond that. Look, in 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. He's referring to the temple. The high priest would go behind the veil into the holy of holies before the Ark of the Covenant, taking the blood of the spotless lamb and sprinkling it around, declaring God's name, asking God to forgive the sins of the people, making atonement for their sins. But he could only do it one day a year. And he didn't go. Like, like he, was, he was their representative. No one else went in. But when Christ goes into the Holy of Holies, not just the temple one, because that's a shadow. When he goes into the real Holy of Holies in heaven, the very throne room of God, he doesn't go just to represent us. Verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. You always send an advanced team before the army arrives. You got to scout things out. You got to make sure you know the terrain and, and develop a good battle strategy. Where you're to put your troops and, and what their orders are going to be. When Christ goes into the Holy of Holies, he goes, well, let's listen to Jesus' own words. I go to prepare a place for you. John chapter 14. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. He goes before us. Just like God is leading the Israelites through the wilderness, leading them by that cloud and that pillar of fire. Just as He is leading them there, Christ is leading us into the very presence of God as our forerunner, making a path for us to be in God's presence. But you see, sinners do not simply walk into God's presence. No. You don't get into the presence of God when you're a sinner. Something has to be done about your sin. That's what Christ does. He goes in and makes atonement as our high priest, atoning for our sins, cleansing us from the sin that keeps us away from God. The whole reason for the veil in the temple was to protect God's holiness, to put a marker to say, sin does not enter here. Because this is where God is. Now that Christ has dealt with our sin, the veil is torn, we have 24-7, 365 access to God. And next year when there's a leap day, we'll have access to Him on that day too. He sanctifies us. And not only us, He sanctifies our hope too. You see, because hope that isn't sanctified gets put in all kinds of strange places. But the hope that exalts Christ is a holy hope. A hope that he's cleaned up, that he's made solid, that he has proven is valid. That holy, solid, valid hope 
keeps lifting high the name that is above every name. It's, it's a great example to people all around us. But sometimes we need the reminder too. Why do we keep trusting ourselves when we have a sure and steadfast anchor in Christ? Why, why do we keep relying on our shaky, unsure knowledge and understanding? Why do we trust in our own paths that seem right to us but just lead to destruction? Why do we trust our own righteousness that's nothing but filthy rags? This valid hope, this solid hope, this holy hope is the only anchor fit for our souls. It's the only anchor that will hold us securely to the rock of ages. Is it your anchor?